Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Our animal friends and companions often fill important roles in our lives as we do in theirs. When a beloved pet falls sick, we often seek the help and solace of our local veterinarian. In this archive edition of Radio Curious, we visit with the late Frank Grassi, who practiced veterinary medicine in Willits, California until his death last year. Using the pen name Charlie Freed, Frank Grassi wrote Vet Tales, Small Stories from a Small Town, a Small Animal Veterinarian. In his book, Grassi, or perhaps Freed, described the daily emotional roller coaster of working for 35 years in animal medicine. He shares with us what he learned about the local bond between us and our animals. Hannah Bird, former assistant producer here at Radio Curious, visited with Dr. Frank Grassi in January of 2010 and began her conversation by asking Dr. Grassi to describe the special relationship between people and their animals. Welcome to Radio Curious. Well, thank you very much, Hannah. I'm really glad to be here. I'd like to start with a quote that you put into one of your books. Once you have enjoyed the love of a pet, you will feel empty without it. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Well, I think I can expand from it from my own point of view now, because uh, at one point I did adopt an animal that did touch my heart. And of course, when you're working with people on a very, very personal basis, you see how those animals change their lives and you can't help but to go along with their emotional ride. But when you go through it yourself, it gives you a totally different perspective, and it can literally break your heart with joy, I guess you would say. What I know as well is that animals and people can sometimes develop a very special bond, and I suppose that you see that day-to-day in your practice. Could you perhaps tell us about some of the ways you think animals and people help each other? I mean, the most obvious one would be with older people. You know, I see these little animals from the time that they're born until they die, and sometimes during that process, a couple will lose a spouse. And now that little pet becomes the most precious thing that they ever had because it's the memory of their spouse. And I think that can be the, the toughest thing to see because I know, and they know, but they're going to deny it as long as possible, but I know that at some point they're going to outlive that little pup or little Katie or whatever it might be. And at that point, they're going to lose the last bond that they had with their spouse. And I think that has to be the saddest thing to watch, but yet you have to be strong for them. So when you're experiencing that, it sounds to me like there is an awful lot more to being a vet than just working on the biology. There's this emotional side. Well, you know, it's very, very funny. Maybe it's ironic. I went into veterinary medicine because I'm not a people person. I just I was better with animals. I had always been better with animals, and I wasn't really good making friends. And I thought, well, gee, that would be a good job. I'll work with animals. But for some reason, no one ever told me that people had to bring them in. So over the course of time, especially since I'm older now, the people that work in my clinic, we refer to it as a daily roller coaster of emotions. And that's exactly what it is. And that's how I got into writing because sometimes after work, I literally couldn't go home. It was just too upsetting. And I would just sit in my office and 
think about whatever happened that day, and before I know it, I'd be writing. And for some reason, that, that gave me some kind of way to adapt to whatever sad thing happened that day and go home and not bring those worries home. From what you've said, it's clear that people get a lot from their relationship with their animals. What do you think, apart from food and water and the place to stay, the animals actually get from that bond as well? Well, I guess the one that you would think of the most would be the animals that get adopted from humane societies and care facilities because those little ones are actually lives are being saved. So they obviously get the safety mm. of having a good home. I think the thing that upsets me the most is that, and this I'm sure follows any society, but there are some people who have pets that are family members, which is the people that I'd like to associate myself with. And then there's people who have animals, which I'm not sure why they do, because they end up outside or they're on a chain, or they sit in the back of a pickup truck on a hot day. And I can't fathom why they would have bothered to have gotten a pet to begin with, especially dogs, because dogs are a social animal. And I'm sure if they could talk, they would much rather be sitting in the cab with their owner than sitting in the back of a truck. It just irritates me so much you know, when I see a pet that is not in the house with the family. Is there any way that you can put that across as their veterinarian to the owners? I don't think you can because the people that are receptive to it have already done it. And the people that are not receptive to it for whatever reason, I don't think they're capable of loving a pet the way it should be loved. So let's stick with those patients and clients that you deal with who actually do have that very special bond. I'm very fortunate because I work in a very small town and I'm fortunate now to be older and have the hindsight of knowing what I want. Because uh, when I first went into veterinary medicine, I thought, well, I need to take care of every single animal for every single person. And now that I'm older and have my own practice, I can realize, you know, there are some people that you cannot reach. And there are some people who love their animals the way I love animals. So I have been able to get my little niche of people that their pets are family members, and that's the people I want in my practice. So I've kind of selectively picked those people to come to my clinic. In your book, having selected those people, you allude to some of those occasions when their beloved pet needs some expensive medical treatment and perhaps they're going to struggle to afford that. Is there a way that you've worked out to try and deal with that situation? Now that, that's a very difficult situation now because veterinary medicine has absolutely, even in just the last 10 years, just changed so dramatically, modeling itself after human medicine, I assume. And it's very, very fortunate that we have these people now who are specialists, people who can have the extra skills that I don't have. And definitely the animals do benefit. There's so many things now available that weren't available even 20 years ago. The trouble is that just like for people, some people can afford those things and some people can't. So it puts me in a situation that I don't like to be in. That is, you're making life and death decisions based on money. I think that hurts me the most but there's really not a lot you can do about it. I am limited to what I can do. Fortunately, there are some instances that I can help, and I think those are the most gratifying moments of veterinary medicine. So give me an example of one of those instances. Well, I can tell you many stories, but some of them are in the book, but actually just last week, two weeks ago, I had a little lady come into my clinic with a little six-year-old poodle. It ended up having hip problems on both hips, and eventually it'll need surgery on both hips. And that surgery is out of her financial reach, I guess you would say. When she went home that night, I sat in my office and had to make the decision, what could we possibly do? Fortunately, in this particular case, it was a surgery that I probably could do, not as well as a specialist, but that I probably could do. 
So when she came in the next week to put the dog to sleep, I couldn't do it. And fortunately, in this particular case, it did turn out okay. And the little dog did go home with the owner. But I think that's why I went into veterinary medicine is for those moments. They're not as frequent as they used to be before specialists, but they're still there. And they still get me up in the morning to go to work. So every time you take on one of those situations, though, you're actually taking on a challenge as well because you're having to try perhaps an operation that... That particular surgery I hadn't done for 12 years. So I, I did a lot of reading. When I was in veterinary school, I was not the sharpest student. You know, I would have to read things over and over and over and over. And I can remember one instance that I was in the ICU, you know, watching the animals, and this doctor who was a very eminent surgeon came in, and I was crying. And... <laughs> And he comes over to me and goes, what are you crying about? And I said, you know, I'm going to be graduating in about five months, and I really don't feel like I'm ready. And he goes, you know, the smart man is the man that knows where to get the knowledge. And he says, you may not have it, but you know where to get it. So I sat down and read my little books over again that I've had probably for years, looked over the muscle structure and the bone structure, and I said, you know, I, I can do the surgery. So it's not something you take nonchalantly. I mean, you put a lot of reading into it, and you really have to be sure that you can do it. Otherwise, I don't think I would have even attempted it. But it turned out well, and I was very, very happy for the lady. And look on her face when that little dog ran out to the lobby. I mean, there is no money you can put on that. When you were training in veterinary medicine, I mean, you could say that you weren't the sharpest student, but I'm wondering how did they prepare you as you're going through your training for this other aspect, the emotional ability that you must have to have and the ability to really relate to your human clients? I went to UC Davis, and at that time, we were very, very well trained, but I had no idea what the emotional impact was going to be. Now, since I go up there quite often to UC Davis, I run a scholarship program in memory of one of my classmates who's mentioned in the book. And they are doing that now. They are definitely getting the students out into the public. They have their own veterinary clinic set up now where students go in and actually see the people just as if they're going to be when they're out in the real world. So I think UC Davis and probably many of the veterinary schools are definitely making an attempt to get the students not only knowledgeable scientifically, but knowledgeable in the human aspect of the emotional part that they're going to be so involved in. I'm interested in carrying on with that aspect, but before I do, I'd like to just mention that we are on Radio Curious, and I'm here with Charlie Freed, a vet who's written a wonderful book, Vet Tales, Small Stories from a Small Town, Small Animal Veterinarian. So, Charlie, I'd just like to come back to this a little bit. You've been practicing veterinary medicine now since 1974? 1974, I graduated. What kind of changes have you seen in the field over that time? Well, I think the biggest change is that when I graduated, at least most of my classmates, some of them went to research, and some of them went into teaching, and some of them went into specialty practices. But the majority, we wanted our own practice. And we wanted our own practice in a rural setting. And I'm not sure why that was. I think maybe because we came from farm backgrounds or things like that. And the thing that's happening now is that most veterinary students want to be in the metropolitan areas. They want to be in large groups of veterinarians, like the five-member veterinary clinics. They want to be close to specialists so they can refer animals to specialty practices. And the biggest thing I think they want is they want to be sure that there's an emergency clinic available so they don't have to come in for emergencies. And, and these are all good things. Uh, it will make them to have a better family life than we have. It's very, very hard to have a family life when you're getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning to do an emergency or 
you don't get home till nine o'clock because you've had a long day and have two surgeries to do after work, you know. So the veterinary medicine of the future, I think, is going to be very good for the veterinarians because they are going to be able to have a good practice life and also have a good family life. And I think that's good. Do you think that whilst that was important, of course, the fact that you've been able to do this and you have kind of sacrificed parts of your life in a way, your time that you could have been at home, that's because you're so passionate about your work. Do you think that future vets maybe aren't going to be so much like that? No, I don't think so. I think they're going to be very passionate, but I think they'll have the ability to have better working conditions so that they can have a more of a family life. And I don't know whether it's so much of a sacrifice. It's more, at the time I did it, it was more like there was no other option. But I will say this, that the spouse of a veterinarian has to be extremely patient, willing to change at the moment's notice. And what I mean by that, you might have reservations for dinner with somebody and you're not going to make it. So they have to be a very, very compassionate, respectful spouse. And I was very fortunate to find that. There was a veterinarian in town a while back. He's passed away now named Charlie Smith. And I always admired him because he was extremely involved with his children's activities. He was extremely involved in the Willits High School and the, and the sports that they were involved in. And I always used to marvel how he could practice. And he practiced six days a week. He was open on Saturdays also. And still made every single game that his daughters were in. And I still don't know how he did that. That, to me, <laughs> makes me so respectful of that person. I'm interested, you picked up a little bit on my next question. What skills do you think make a really great vet? I think the biggest skill that makes a good vet is knowing your limitations. And it took me a, a number of years to realize that I can't do everything and that there are people better equipped or better knowledgeable, that you make yourself realize there are things that you can really do well and things that the pet would benefit from being referred to someone who's better than you or more qualified or more experienced. And I think the skill also is knowing the people that you're working for are committed to their pet and their heart is in that pet. And if your heart's not there with them, I think they'll know that. I remember a veterinary classmate of mine who was extremely, extremely smart, but he absolutely had no people skills whatsoever. And I always thought to myself, I wonder what will happen to him. And he ended up going to an emergency clinic, became an extremely uh, good emergency veterinarian, but he didn't have to deal with the public side of it. I think to practice the way I practice and most veterinarians practice, you have to have the people skills to be compassionate and be rational and help them through very difficult choices under very emotional times and try not to cry all the time. <laughs> the other thing that I've noticed in the book is you've got that emotional ability, but there's something else. There's the ability to react at very short notice to perhaps a difficult situation. For example, a time when you were taken out in the middle of the night to go and deal with what seemed a rather ferocious bull. <laughs> so I don't know if you'd like to just expand on that story a little bit. Well, I think veterinarians, more so maybe from the 60s to the early 80s, had to be very innovative because there were not a lot of specialized equipment and things like that available. Yeah, you have to be able to be adaptive to the situation. Could you perhaps tell us that story a little bit now as a taster of the book? When I first came to Willits, I bought over a practice that had originally been a mixed practice, meaning they did horses and cattle and sheep and pigs. The veterinarian agreed to sell me his practice, and I decided to open up the small animal section, and he moved his to the large animal section to his farm. And on occasion, I was inexperienced enough to try to help him out when he was gone on vacation. And there was this one episode that I remember quite well of going out in the middle of the night raining 
raining and raining, which I'm sure we we're glad to have the rain, but that, at night it wasn't so much fun. And just being soaked to the bone, literally, trying to get this bull out of the mud. And I, it almost you would have to read the story to, to get the whole benefit of it. But I'll say that we had to be very uh, innovative to figure out how to get the bull out of the mud. And then once it was out of the mud, you had to be a marathon runner to survive. So. <laughs> what is it that really inspired you to get your stories down into a book? Most of the stories came from experiences that I had at the clinic that I felt I couldn't just walk home. I, I had to sit and just either meditate or cry or write or whatever it took me to get into a position where I could be mentally okay to go home and not bring all these things home to my wife. And uh, you know, I started writing these stories first for myself and then I started entering contests and veterinary trade journals. And when I started winning, I thought, well, gee, maybe somebody really does like these stories. So that made me write even more stories. And then I won a story of a year and got my picture on the cover. And boy, that really got my ego going. So I thought, I'm going to write some more stories, you know. And pretty soon I had all these little stories. And at that time, my mother became very ill. And she would love to read these stories because she was, for the most part, part of those stories. So then it became a challenge because I knew I didn't have much time. And I wanted to get this book done so that she could have the first copy. And on her 86th birthday, she got the first copy of Vet Tales, and uh, she passed away a year later. I bet it meant a lot to her to hold it in her hands and see And that. she laughed and laughed. You know, when you're dealing with humans, we, we all have that same physiology, but how on earth do you manage when you could have any, any patient come in, you know, any species? Well, you know, like I said, I have limited myself, but in the early days, yes, that's true. Now they have actually specialists for reptiles and specialists for the birds and specialists for eye problems of animals, uh, specialists in the, in the marine animals. So it's not as much as it used to be. But what we used to do, and I'm not saying it was right or anything, but we would have to say, okay, this is what we did for a dog or a cat. Maybe this animal doesn't need that much medication. And you would just try to do the best you can with the limited knowledge that we had at that time. And I have to say that even though I can remember some things that didn't work out well, for the majority of time, it did work out well. And I, I remember something, somebody told me somewhere, it said that, say, 90% of veterinary medicine is going to get better on its own, so just don't goof up the 10%. You know? <laughs> Your book is a real inspiration, I think, to people who are perhaps thinking about what career they might go into. Is that something you thought about at all, about perhaps some of the younger generation and those who are thinking about going into veterinary medicine? You know, at, at the time, it never crossed my mind. Uh, I was just enjoying the challenge of trying to get a book together. What I have done, there were some people that in my early, uh, well, high school, I would say, that, that influenced me quite a bit. And there was a physics professor in, in my JC college who was a great personal help to me at a time when I really needed it. William Talk. Uh, he, he was a very, very uh, helpful man at the time I needed. Anyway, what, what I was leading up to, I actually tracked down these people and sent them my book and told them thank you very much for what they did for me. And he wrote back, back to me saying, this book should go to high schools. This is a book that people who are interested in veterinary medicine should be reading to know what it's all about. And with that in mind, I thought, well, maybe I should be you know, targeting universities where students are like pre-med or pre-veterinary to help them become more aware of what really is going to happen on the outside. And like, like I said, I think the veterinary schools now are trying much more to help students get better uh, public skills. Mm. But uh, at the time I wasn't thinking about that, but yes, I think it's a book that if a, an, a parent had a child 
who was thinking about veterinary medicine or liked animals, I think they would get a lot of, out of the book as, to prepare them for what could happen. I think if I had a young person in my office now, first thing that we do is I get, actually give them a brochure from UC Davis that tells them all about veterinary medicine and what kind of courses are involved. There's actually days when they can go up to UC Davis and take tours of the veterinary clinic. I definitely would give them that. And I would tell them that to expect the unexpected because yes, you do work with animals, but you work with people who have emotions. Um, those emotions can be good or bad. The animals can be happy or not happy. One of the things I've noticed over the years as we've had young people come through the clinic to observe is that they are sometimes saddened by the things that happen in veterinary medicine and decide not to go into veterinary medicine because they feel like they couldn't uh, take that emotional burden on. I think I would tell a young person that veterinary medicine now has so many things that they can do with it. They don't have to go into veterinary medicine to see animals with people. They can go into research. They can go into teaching. Um, they can go into the marine animals. They can work at in zoos. I mean, there's so many different avenues that they can go into now that I think I would encourage them to become a veterinarian because there's so many possibilities for them. I'm interested in your answers to our two Radio Curious signature questions. And I'd like to start with, have you had any real aha moments recently, something that's come to mind that's an important thought? I think for me it was. Recently, one of my clients passed away. I went to their memorial service and a local optometrist uh, read a poem. And the poem was by uh, Michael Jokison and it says, what will matter? When he read that, all of a sudden I wasn't sad about the person who had left, and it made me realize that what really matters is not what we accumulate, but who we touch. It's not what we did, but what we'll, we'll be remembered for. I would urge anybody to read this because in this day and age when we're so worried about our cell phones and our internet, widescreen TV, could I read just part of it? I would love you to. What will matter is not how many people knew you, but how many people will feel a lasting loss when you're gone. What will matter is not your memories, but the memories of those who loved you. What will matter is not how long you will be remembered, but by whom and for what. Living a life that matters doesn't happen by accident. It's not a matter of circumstance, but of choice. Choose to live a life that matters. Well, thank you for that. And you feel that that particularly applied to your veterinary medicine shows perhaps the emotional aspect of it? Definitely. The other question I'd like to ask is, have you read any books recently that you might like to recommend? I'm a big mystery fan. Mm -hmm. I love mysteries, and I happen to reread Robert Parker's books. I uh, happen to be a Spencer fan. I've recently been reading his books on Jesse Stone, who's a, a sheriff in a, in a small town. And then the last one I just read was, I went back and reread Marnie and didn't realize, but the person who wrote Marnie was also the person who wrote the Podoc series, Winston Graham. It's funny, you, know, you, you read a book and you forget about it and you think you knew everything that was about that book. And then you go back and read the book and you find things that you completely either didn't notice or forgotten. I hope we are never in an age when we don't have books that we can go back and read. Now, I'd just like to finish off with one extra question. At the end of your book, you write about the feelings that you have when you lose a really beloved pet. And you include in that a poem that you'd written about that period. I'm wondering if you might be willing to read us that poem now. I would be definitely willing to read that poem now. That was written for a very special client that I had. When I sent them this poem, I said, this is for, for you uh, and, your, and your partner. And I felt that it was such a personal poem for them 
that I, I actually asked them if it was okay to put in the book. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be at the very end of the book because it means that much to me. So the uh, poem is called Passing in the Night. It's too quiet. There is something wrong. I awake from a sound sleep. It is so dark I can't see, but I reach my hand down to your place and it's empty. I lie back and listen, but nothing comes to my ears. I open and close my eyes and I try to think, what does that mean? My feet make its way to the side of the bed and I'm soon up. I call your name, but I remember you haven't heard me in such a long time. But still no noise, no loud breathing, no scratching sounds, no snoring. It's too quiet. There's something wrong. And I make my way down the stairs. I check your spot by the chair, but it's empty too. So I wander about the living room, feeling all your usual places. My hands touch nothing, and I head for the kitchen. I find you next to your food dish. Both are cold. I stand still. I let that sink so ever slowly into my sleep-weary mind. It is too quiet. There is something wrong, and you are gone. I feel a wetness on my face, and I realize I'm crying, making no sound. I sit down next to you and lay my head down on your still chest. I lay there thinking of all the years that have gone by. Smiles and tears come one after the other as I remember your silly ways. You're dancing at dinner time, your chases across the garden, your bark. It's too quiet. There's something wrong. And you have left me. I hold on to you and cradle you in my arms, still sitting on the floor. I look up. And your other friend has found us, and she hugs us both. I can feel her sobs. Her tears fall on my head, and I hold you even tighter. I lay you down on your bed and cover you with your blanket. We hug each other over you and tell each other it's okay. You were old. You were tired and sore. You were loved. We slowly climb the stairs back to our bed. It is too quiet. You are gone, but oh so loved. Thank you so much for reading that out because I think anybody who has had that experience of having a pet that they love so much and having it pass away, I think it helps them. Thank you. So thank you for joining us, Charlie Freed, on Radio Curious. It was really enjoyable speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me, Hannah. Anna Bird, the former assistant producer at Radio Curious, interviewed the late Dr. Frank Grossi, a Willits, California veterinarian, in January 2010. Dr. Grossi used the pen name Charlie Freed to write his book, Vet Tales, Small Stories from a Small Town, Small Animal Veterinarian. The book that both Frank Grossi and Charlie Freed recommend is Marnie by Winston Graham. All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. 
Our email is curious at radiocurious.org, and the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastad is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. 